Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. Hi, everybody. This is Shannon. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I am really excited about today's episode because today I get to share an interview I did with author Liz Moore, who wrote um, Long Bright River. It came out in January, actually the very first week of January 2020, and it is a phenomenal look at addiction, at sisterhood, Um, at kind of the ways family shapes our lives. It's also a really compelling mystery, and I just loved everything about it. I'm super excited for you to hear this interview. And then, of course, I have your guide to this week's new releases. But before I can get into any of that exciting stuff, I have to give you the usual housekeeping information. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. And now, there's no reason for me to just keep talking and talking, so let's move right on into the interview. Again, this is author Liz Moore on the Book Bistro Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon, and I am here today with author Liz Moore, whose novel Long Bright River released in January. Liz, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So can we start off by giving our listeners a little bit of an introduction to Long Bright River and its characters? Sure. Um, Long Bright River is the story of two sisters who are living in a neighborhood called Kensington in Philadelphia, which has been particularly hard hit by the opioid crisis. And um, the older sister's name is Mickey, and she is a police officer who patrols Kensington. And the younger sister's name is Casey, and she is suffering from opioid addiction and living on and off the street. And at the start of the novel, Casey goes missing at the same time that a string of homicides is occurring in the neighborhood. And Mickey decides to um, go looking for her on the job, but also off the job, which um, gets her into some trouble. Um, And um, this is despite the fact that the sisters are kind of formally estranged at the start of the book, but they have a shared history together. Um, of being really, really close as children due to a somewhat traumatic childhood. Um, and that is, I think, the, what compels Mickey to go looking for her sister. So I read this shortly after its release, and it was one of those books that I sort of dove into, and then I found it really, really hard to put the book down. It was like I had to see 
how things were going to turn out. Um, I just wasn't sure what was going to happen. So it was a really compelling, um, a really compelling read with a fantastic narrator um, in Mickey. And so I'm wondering if you can tell people a little bit about your inspiration for her and why you chose to make this story completely from her point of view, rather than kind of bouncing back and forth between the sisters. Sure. Um, Mickey is a, an interesting character. I think she's polarizes people. There are some people who really like her and some people who feel really frustrated with her. And I fall someplace in the middle. Um, she's very, I guess, kind of self-righteous, especially at the start of the novel. She's she holds herself up as somebody who always tries to make the right choice and she doesn't really understand why she and her younger sister came out of the same family and the same background, but, but she, Mickey always chose the right path and Casey hasn't. Um, but of course, um, our understanding of Mickey becomes more complicated as the book goes on. Um, the reason I chose to write in her voice, um, is, I initially began by trying to write, I wrote from all different points of view. I, there was a moment where this book was written in the third person. Um, there was a moment where I was trying to write in Casey's voice. Um, neither one of those felt particularly successful. Um, partly, I think I wrote in Mickey's point of view because I had more in common with her than any of the other characters in the book. And so it felt more natural to me to write in her voice. Um, but yeah, she really propels the narrative. Um, yeah. She certainly does. And I think one of the best things about her is kind of her ability to, as you said, polarize people. Mm -hmm. like Mickey is not a perfect heroine, um, mm -hmm. although perhaps she would like to be, but she's not. Um, and I think that makes her sort of extra relatable because I think no matter how, how much any of us wants to believe that we are always right and the people in our lives are always wrong, that's just not usually how it happens. And so I love kind of her humanity and her ability to mess up, even if she doesn't always recognize it as such. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. So when you were sitting down to write this book, what was your sort of process for doing that? Like, did you start with kind of the whole plot very neatly mapped out or did mm -hmm. the story surprise you as you were writing it? Um, I definitely did not have the whole plot mapped out. I never do, unfortunately for me. I, I don't work from an outline. I just kind of, the only thing I know going in is um, that, you know, I know who the characters are. Typically, I know who my main characters will be. I know where and when they're living. And I know um, a little bit about, like, the problem they might have. Um, but beyond that, I don't know, like, how the problem will be solved. I don't know what they're going to do over the course of the novel. I just begin writing, and I see what the characters kind of want to do, and I go from there. And that means having them do things that, don't feel right for them a lot of the time and then I scrap those scenes and bring them back and send them out again and try to think of something else for them to do so that's why it takes me a long time to write all my books um I yeah it's not a smooth process by any means 
So did you have to do a ton of research as you prepared to write this? Yeah. Um, a lot of it was pretty organic. I didn't, um, formally, you know, I was spent one of the first reasons, one of the first things I did upon um, arriving in Philadelphia a little over a decade ago was visit the neighborhood of Kensington with a photographer who was making portraits in the neighborhood. And, um, I, uh, was really compelled by what I saw, ended up writing some nonfiction about the neighborhood and then ended up doing community work there at a women's day shelter for a while. So, um, I, I guess all those experiences had me spending a lot of time in the neighborhood and that meant that much of what you might see in the book about Kensington, I didn't do yeah, intentionally, I just was there learning mm -hmm. stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Other stuff, though, I did have to do formal research for. Like a lot of the stuff about police work, I, I had no idea about. So I ended up um, talking to a number of police officers about their work. And I did a ride along in a neighborhood adjacent to Kensington in Philadelphia. Um, and then I also had to do research about the history of the neighborhood, which was almost all just through books and um, online research. So for me, as you know, someone who, who doesn't write, but who went through grad school, I, I struggled with research. Like that was mm. never something that I was good at. Yeah. And so I've always sort of thought, you know, for someone to sit down and write a book, like, do you love the research process or is it more of sort of a thing you have to do in order to get where you want to go? I love, I love it. A lot of what happens when I write a book is, it, a book grows out of whatever I'm obsessively reading about. So a lot of the research for me is front loaded and I don't even know that I'm doing research for a book until it's done kind of like, ah, you know, I'll just be okay. reading and reading and reading and re feeling really, really interested in something. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I guess this means I'm about to write a book about it. Um, and then of course, as you start writing, all that front-loaded research only goes so far because you come across questions in the writing that um, you don't have the answers for. And when that happens, typically if I'm in the middle of a writing session, I'll just like make something up and put it in bold or a different color. So I remember to go back and find out what would really happen in that moment. Um, and then I'll use other times, other sessions to just do research into um, what, what needs to happen there. Um, either through interviews sometimes or through reading or watching documentaries or things like that. So that raises a really interesting point because I always wondered like if, you know, someone's writing and they come across something that they don't know, like mm -hmm. how would that be? Like you wouldn't, I assume, want to stop right there and say, oh, you know, I have to go look this up. So that's interesting to me that you just sort of like make it up and then go back later and make sure that what you've made up is actually plausible. Um, yeah. It would seem like it would be hard to keep your, your flow if you had to stop exactly. and say, oh, you know, now we'll go and look this up and oh, no, here's this other thing. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. I find that I can't interrupt myself too much when I'm writing or else I'll never return to it. So mm -hmm. I tend to just turn off all, um, like I'd completely disconnect from the internet. I try not to look at my phone when I'm writing so that I can just make oh. forward progress. And then eventually I have to go back and correct myself in a lot of ways, but I find that that's the only way I know how to write. So what does your revision process usually look like? 
It's ongoing. I mean, I am a writer who um, I I guess I'm I err a little bit more on the like perfectionist side. Like I have a really strong internal editor as I write, which means I'm a slow writer. I know that there are a lot of writers who subscribe to the school of thought of like write a bad first draft and just get it out there and it doesn't really matter. And I, I just find that if I'm writing a draft that is is so bad that I lose interest in it, then that's a recipe for disaster too. So I can't mm-hmm. I can't really move forward until I like what I'm writing. Um, so a lot of the revision process is 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 more ongoing. I don't write a complete draft from start to finish knowing that it's bad. Instead, I just write the same scene over and over and over again, or like scrap scenes and, and write different scenes um, until I get to where I'm going. And then once I have a draft that I feel is as good as I can get it, that's only when I, that's the only time I'll show it to somebody. I don't have like readers who read my bad drafts. I just ah okay yeah. I work until I think it's a good draft personally, and then I start showing it to usually my agent first. Um, occasionally, I'll have like one or two friends look at it, but it really depends on the book. Um, and he'll give me feedback. Um, and then we'll show it to editors. Um, that's the way I've worked. So how long did it take you to create and then, you know, get to the, the finished point with Long Bright River? Well, it's, that's a tricky question to answer because I was kind of like, I was writing about the neighborhood as early as 2009, but most of that was like nonfiction that never got published or a couple of, I published a couple of nonfiction pieces, but um, most of it was like almost like sketches or a diary that I was keeping. Um, Okay. And then I wrote a short story about it and I want to say like 2012 that I never finished and I never published because it wasn't working. But it, that's the first time I wrote about these characters, Casey and Mickey, although they looked a lot different than they do in the novel. Um, and then um, I was working at, in 2012, when I wrote that short story, I was at work on a different novel called The Unseen World. Um, so I, I finished, I, I was immersed in that world, and I finished that novel. And only when I finished a draft of The Unseen World did I say, okay, what am I going to write next? And all and the characters from that short story like returned to me as people I wanted to write about and so I would say once I really put my head down to start writing the novel it was about a four-year process it always fascinates me how almost everyone I talk to has a slightly different process like we have Mm -hmm. people who write kind of as you said you know like sort of from start to finish and they'll just like put out draft after draft until it mm-hmm. feels right to them. Um, and I always love hearing about how various people come to their creative process. So thank you yeah. for, for being open about that. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I too, I mean, I'm friends with a lot of writers at this point and you're right. All of us have different processes. And um, I think the only thing, I think every novel has been really a challenge for me to write in its own way. Um, the only thing I take from book to book with me that I, I feel I've learned over the years is like that it's supposed to be difficult and that a, a moment, a prolonged period of thinking that the book is garbage is like pretty much par for the course. Um, and I think when I get to that moment in the writing, at this point, I just know that it's normal and I have to just write through it rather than abandoning it. So 
that's about it. <laughs> that's the only thing I take with me from book to book that I've learned. So yeah. as you write kind of each individual novel, do you find the writing experience different from book to book? Um, in certain ways, yeah. I mean, every book has its own set of issues, and those are new every book. I have uh -huh. to figure out how to deal with them every single time in a different way. <clears throat> but um, as I said, the practice of writing is something that I think I get better at as the as the books go on, just feeling more secure in the knowledge that I'm able to write novels and that the difficulty of writing novels is a part of their process. And um, I, I guess I feel more sure that um, that I have to just put my head down and like plow forward um, and less insecure when that moment happens. Uh-huh. So what is your background? Like what made you decide that writing books is what you wanted to do? Um... My background, I, when I was a kid, I, I really, really loved writing poetry, and I kept little journals, and I read voraciously, like like a lot of us, like like a yes. lot of writers, but also a lot of readers, you know, like there, I, I think there's like a particular tribe of people who've just always been really drawn to books, um, and I was part of that tribe, and um, when I got to college, um, I, I would say I come from a very practical family and a family that always emphasized being able to be financially independent and have a career and not, ah. you know, not, um, not rely. I think everyone in the family was a little bit like nervous about whether or not, um, my career would be, um, a f a financially stable one to the point where when I got to college, although I really loved writing and reading, and I probably should have just been an English major from the beginning. My first major that I declared was in the sciences, even though I hadn't been like, that wasn't really my, those weren't my strong academic subjects. I just thought that's what I, that's a much more practical thing to do. So I'm going to do it. And I really struggled academically for about a year after I declared that major. Um, and then I finally said, you know what, I am much more suited to being an English major. So I switched my major to English and did very well in all my courses um, and ended up um, beginning a series of interconnected short stories in college that would go on to become my first published book, at which point, which is called The Words of Every Song, at which point I, I kind of, that's the first time I gave myself permission to think, all right, maybe I, maybe I will try to publish books throughout my whole life and only then did I apply to an MFA program after my first book was published and then I kind of went from there. So are you writing full-time now? No I teach full-time at a university I still have that instinct to keep my day job. Ah okay. Um, yeah I, I don't feel like I mean part of it is just I like the emotional security of having um full-time work aside from writing I don't like to depend on my writing because mm -hmm. I don't ever want to be in the position of having to like speed up my writing process artificially in order to get a paycheck for an, you know, or something like that right um, I want every book to take as long as it takes and that's how I've always written and that's how I always want to write so I teach um, full-time in the MFA program at Temple University in Philadelphia um, which is a terrific university, um, and, and it's a good job, too, for a writer because it does offer 
a great deal of flexibility in terms of schedule. Um, I have two little kids too. And so my life is very busy, especially this yes. spring now that I'm on book tour. Um, but it's a good kind of busy. And I feel like this is the right balance for me between teaching and writing and parenting. I, I feel like it's, it's appropriate. So I'm, I'm really happy at the moment. So how do you make sure that you have the time to devote to all of the things in your life? Like, how do you try to balance your teaching with your writing and then your family commitments as well? When I was at the peak of my book tour, which was in the book came out January 7th. And for yes. pretty much all of January, I was on the move. I had events, multiple events a week. I traveled to the UK and, and Ireland for a week. I was like really nonstop. I gave myself permission to just not, not try to write anything during that time. Um, I was still teaching and I was, of course, always parenting. Um, yes. But now February settled down. Um, March gets busy again. Um, but fe in February, I really tried hard to return to a routine of writing. So typically Mondays are my busiest days on campus teaching. So I don't write on Mondays. I just focus on schoolwork and teaching. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I try hard to write for a dedicated period every day. And then I end up having to do other work as well. And then Fridays, I watch, I have both of my kids at home, so I don't write on Fridays either. So it's really Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And the weekends are a lost cause because well, with yes. little kids, you just, you know, you're attending to them and almost nothing else. Right. Um, so that's but, not yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, to Thursday. Right. Are my big, my big writing days. And I really try to keep them that way. So do you have any idea what's coming next for you now that Long Bright River is out in the world? So it's, um, it was optioned by um, two production companies that came together um, to, make, to make an offer. And um, I'm attached to write, and that is one thing I'm doing. Um, and, uh, of course, I'm working on this next novel, although I can't talk about it yet because I'm not fully committed to it. And I don't. Ah, I, yes. I want to leave room for the possibility of scrapping it still. <laughs> but I'm working on something. Um, awesome. So those are my two big projects writing wise. Yeah. So when you look back at Long Bright River, would you categorize it as like a mystery, like a procedural, a kind of general fiction novel, or kind of a combination of all of those things? Yeah, I think it's, um, it has been described as genre bending, which I, is a word I like, because I really love reading um, genre fiction and watching, uh, especially like police procedurals or, or crime dramas I'm an avid reader and watcher of both both of those things um and, and I respect the genre a lot but I also my history as a writer is of writing um literary fiction or family dramas or whatever you want to call them mm -hmm. so it was never my intention to step fully into the genre um but rather to kind of respectfully like combine a, a bunch of genres and in fact that's not if you know if I can be categorized in any way as a writer I hope it's as that as somebody who whose books are difficult to categorize so Long Bright River might cross um, police procedural or crime drama with literary fiction but my last book too The Unseen World was often described similarly uh, but instead of uh, crime fiction I, I, I 
straddled the worlds of um, science fiction or speculative fiction with literary fiction. Um, the Unseen World is, um, takes place um, in a computer lab in the 1980s with a child prodigy who's being raised by her father with kind of like in the lab um, at the same time that he's developing um, a, a highly intelligent um, language processing software. Um, so, and then it moves into the future a bit. So yeah, I guess I've never been interested in just like writing within one genre. I want to feel like I'm free to write whatever I want. And I hope I can continue to feel that way going forward, maybe with the central similarity between all my books being a really strong sense of character. I love that. I love the idea that you don't have to be bound to writing in a specific style or genre that you can just sort of follow where your characters and your vision mm -hmm. takes you. Yeah, I hope that's the case. And I hope that readers are kind of willing to to follow me around a little bit too. I think that's the risk you take. Like if, you know, I think with Long Great River, I've reached a larger audience than I have in the past. And I imagine that a lot of those, the people in that audience love to read um, crime fiction. And so I'd be lying if I didn't say that scares me a little bit because it, there's there's certainly like the temptation to just stay within that world now um, mm -hmm. in order to to keep those readers. But, you know, if anybody's listening who likes crime fiction, <laughs> my next book I can promise will be suspenseful in some way. I'm not exactly sure what way, but but that's what I hope. So I am an avid like mystery thriller reader, but I also read a lot of romance and some fantasy some historical fiction. And I think it's becoming more sort of popular for readers to not sort of pigeonhole themselves by saying, oh, yeah. I only read right. crime fiction. Mm -hmm. So have you read anything spectacular lately that you would like to recommend? Yeah, uh, always. Um, yes. One book <laughs> I'm reading right now that's surprising me a lot because I did not realize that it was that it could be categorized as this, is um, the book Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by a Polish writer named Olga Tokarczuk, who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature. So, um, and um, what what's surprising me about the book is two things. One is it, too, could kind of be categorized as um, a mystery or crime fiction. It opens with the death of a character and a subsequent kind of, like, investigation of that death. Um, and the other thing that's surprising me is um, there have been a lot of Nobel Prize winners whose work I've really loved. There have been other Nobel Prize winners whose work I have found really dense and difficult to get through and less of a pleasure read and more of a read that's meant to engage your intellect. Mm -hmm. This one is so readable and the characters are so wonderful and likable that um, I just am, it's, so, it's refreshing, that's the word that I'm using to describe it, because it just feels like a breath of fresh air to realize like this is what fiction can do and this is you know it's just it's really impressive on for a lot of reasons um and then the other plugs I'll give are to a whole bunch of there's like this big crop of of Philly women writers um that have that have been publishing recently and one of them is my friend Kylie Reed who doesn't yes. need any more attention for her book because her book is everywhere but I I have to say I loved it um yes, her book I. is such a fun age um another book is 
by another friend of mine named Emma Eisenberg, who also lives in Philadelphia, and it's called The Third Rainbow Girl, and it's nonfiction. It's true. It is another book that combines genres. It's com- a sort of a combination of true crime and memoir about a, a double murder that took place in Appalachia in West Virginia um, in uh, around 1980 um, of two women who were on their way to a convention of rainbow people, which is diff- uh, an organization that's difficult to describe. It's kind of like a hippie ish, somewhat cult ish, although they would not want to be described that way. Organization of people who believe in like free love. Um, ah, okay. I yeah. just picked this up actually. Yeah. Um, it came out like super recently. Yeah. And yeah. it's one that I just scooped up. So I'm looking forward to that. But I too loved um, Such a Funny Age. I thought yeah. it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yep. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking time to talk with me. And I want to congratulate you on this powerhouse of a novel that so many people have loved and found meaningful, both meaningful and entertaining. Um, This is truly a remarkable story, and I'm so glad that you were able to share it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, so now let's talk about new books because there are some really fantastic things that I've been excited about for a very long time and I cannot wait to talk about them with all of you. So first up is a book that I mentioned on our most anticipated books of March and this is The Deep by Almakatsu. It's historical fiction mixed with horror And a lot of it has to do with the fatal voyage of the Titanic. So I am very intrigued by this. I loved The Hunger, which was another book she wrote. So I'm hoping that this one turns out to be as good. And again, it's The Deep by Almakatsu. This next book, the name of it is just like phenomenal. So this is The Small Crimes of Tiffany Templeton, and it's by Richard Fifield. And it's the story of a teenage girl who's learning how to grieve. And the publisher is billing it as The Serpent King Meets Girl in Pieces. Neither of these books have I read, but I've heard great things about both of them, and this one looks amazing. So it's The Small Crimes of Tiffany Templeton by Richard Fifield. We also have the second book in Lissa K. Adams' um, Bromance Book Club series. This is Undercover Bromance, and this is a contemporary romance. Um, It's the second in a series about a group of men who start reading romance novels in hopes of learning some things about love and relationships. I have not read this series yet, but a lot of people love it. They say it's really charming. So if this sounds like something you would like to check out, this is Undercover Bromance, Bromance Book Club, Book 2 by Lissa K. Adams. We also have Between the Records. This is by Julian Tepper, and it's a semi-autobiographical novel about two brothers who form a band and we kind of explore not only their fame but the way their fame affects their relationships with with one another. So this again is Between the Records and it is by Julian Tepper. And a historical novel, 
perfect for fans of Christina McMorris's Sold on a Monday, and perhaps of um, Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate as well. This is Lost Boy Found by Kirsten Alexander. This takes place in the American South, and it's the story of one boy's disappearance. It's based on a true story. So if this um, is kind of historical fiction that you really enjoy, you will probably want to check it out. It's Lost Boy Found, and it's by Kirsten Alexander. This next author is one that I have heard fantastic things about for the past three years, perhaps. Um, she's written two adult novels so far, and this is her young adult debut. This is Fight Like a Girl. It's by Sheena Kamal. And it asks the question, like, what if you were the person driving the car that killed your father? Like, how would that be? I think that'd be pretty terrible. But I want to read this and see um, what this author does with this really, really compelling setup. So it's Fight Like a Girl, and the author is Sheena Kamal. If you love the circus, so I love the idea of the circus. I don't love the practices of the circus. I think a lot of really terrible things happen there, but I love reading about it and I probably always will. But if you are like me and enjoy these kinds of books, then you will definitely want to check out Harley in the Sky by Akimi Don Bowman. And this is a young adult novel, a multicultural novel about a young girl who risks everything to achieve her dreams and she does this by running away to join the circus which is sort of like a trope you know we kind of make fun of it that like kids are going to run away and join the circus but here's the story of a girl who actually does this so it's Harley in the Sky and the author is Akimi Don Bowman. I'm really excited to talk to you about this next book because I was able to read an early copy of this and I loved it so much. This is Unfollow Me. It is a psychological thriller by Charlotte Duckworth. And it looks at like our YouTube kind of influencers, our big vloggers, the people that are really making themselves into household names using social media. And what happens when one of these people just kind of drops off the face of the earth? You don't know where they are. Their social media accounts are gone. What do you do? Well, hopefully you don't do what the people in this book do because it seems to get them into a lot of trouble. But this is Unfollow Me by Charlotte Duckworth and I loved it so much. This next book just sort of appeals to that like gossipy side of my nature that I probably shouldn't admit to having. But, you know, here it is. I, I do have um, such a side to me. This is The Operator and it's by Gretchen Burke. And it asks, what if you could listen in on all the phone conversations in town? You would know so many things about like your friends, your neighbors, maybe even your enemies. So this is a historical novel set in the 1950s and it's called The Operator and it is by Gretchen Berg. And how about a literary crime novel? This is The Keeper. It's by Jessica Moore and it talks about a commonplace crime, so the, the disappearance of a young woman. You know, that's the premise of a lot of books these days. But apparently the crime itself turns out to be anything but common. And if you want to find out why or how, then you'll have to read this, as I will. It's definitely one that I plan to pick up this week. This is The Keeper, and it's by Jessica Moore. I 
read quite a few um, Philip Margolin books several years ago, and I really enjoyed his legal thrillers. For some reason that I can't really put a name to, I haven't picked up any of his newer stuff, and I think that's just more about the volume of things that I have to read and not so much about like his writing in and of itself, because I did really enjoy the stuff that he wrote. Um, he's releasing the third book in his Robin Lockwood series this week, and this is called A Reasonable Doubt. And as I said, it's Robin Lockwood, book three, by Philip Margolin. And here's an author who is near and dear to the hearts of many of us here on Book Bistro. Jude Devereaux is kind of a gateway author for so many of us and taught us to love historical romance. Um, and for a lot of us, that kind of branched out into contemporary and paranormal and romantic suspense. But Jude Devereaux is a master of her craft. She's releasing the third book in her Meddler Mystery series, and this is called A Forgotten Murder. I have not read a Jude Devereaux book in a long time. Um, again, there's not really a good reason for that. I love her historicals so much, and she's written some really fantastic contemporaries as well. Um, as much as I love mysteries, I think it just kind of makes me sad to see that she's focusing on kind of these small town mysteries instead of romance. But if you're a Jude Devereaux fan, then you will probably want to check this out. I know that I should kind of get over myself and do it because I will probably love it. So this is A Forgotten Murder, Meddler Mystery Number 3 by Jude Devereaux. And we all next have another series that I have not read. This is the Veronica Speedwell series by Deanna Rayborn. And the fifth book is out this week. It's called A Murderous Relation. And these are historical mysteries with kind of a romantic arc that runs through the series. I've heard great things about this author. I do want to read her at some point. I just haven't gotten around to it. But hopefully you have. And if you have, then you might be looking forward to this book. It is A Murderous Relation. Veronica Speedwell, number five, by Deanna Rayborn. Next up is In Five Years. This is the second novel by Rebecca Searle. And it's kind of a speculative fiction novel that asks, like, where you see yourself in five years. And what if you have an answer all worked out, but then you wake up one morning and everything in your life is so different than anything that you could have imagined. That is the setup for this book. She wrote The Dinner Party um, last year, and that one did not appeal to me, but this one really does. So this is In Five Years, and it's by Rebecca Searle. Okay, let's talk about fantasy, and not just any fantasy, but dark, dark, dark fantasy. Anne Bishop took the world by storm several years ago with her series about the others, but that was not really what put Anne Bishop on the map for a lot of us. She wrote a fantastic series um, called The Black Jewels, and it started out as just a trilogy, and it's grown into this massive thing. The 10th book is out this week. It's called The Queen's Bargain, and it's not a book that I think you should just kind of dive into. I think you'd kind of want to go back to the beginning of the series, which is Daughter of the Blood. Um... And I will talk in more depth about this series when we do our episode on kind of long-running series that we love. But this is fantasy at its, dark, at its darkest, and I'm really excited. So this is The Queen's Bargain, Black Jewels, number 10, by Anne Bishop. Next up, we're going to keep it dark, but step away from fantasy. 
This is Privilege by Mary Adkins, and this examines campus life in kind of the Me Too movement and how these two things intersect. So it's Privilege and it's by Mary Adkins. So we don't talk a lot about short story collections here on Book Bistro. Um, a lot of us don't read them, so they just don't get a lot of buzz here. However, I was really intrigued by the synopsis for this collection, and the title is amazing. This is A Phoenix First Must Burn, 15 Stories of Black Girl Magic, Resistance, and Hope by Patrice Caldwell. So I don't think I need to give you much more of a, like, a summary of this. It's a collection of stories um, featuring female magic and black um, women and girls and I am so excited. So this is by Patrice Caldwell, and it's A Phoenix First Must Burn, 15 Stories of Black Girl Magic, Resistance, and Hope. Next up is a book that makes me sad um, just as much as it thrills me. This is Revolver Road by Christy Doherty, and it is the third, and from what I understand, the final book in her Harper McLean series. These are mysteries featuring a hardworking, very resourceful, kind of unethical newspaper reporter named Harper McLean. They're set in Savannah, Georgia, and I love them so much. Um, the Echo Killing was the first book. It came out a couple of years ago, and it was fantastic. It was followed up by A Beautiful Corpse, and now we have Revolver Road. It's finally here. I read an early copy, and it is marvelous. So again, Revolver Road. Harper McLean, book three, by Christy Doherty. Next, I have to talk to you about a historical novel. This is And They Called It Camelot, a novel of Jacqueline Bouvier, Kennedy Onassis. It's by Stephanie Marie Thornton, who wrote um, American Princess last year, and that was a fantastic book. I'm hoping this one will be just as good. Um, I don't suppose I need to really tell you much about it, but it is the story of um, Jacqueline Kennedy. So if you are a fan of the Kennedy era, or if you are like me and were not alive during that era, but would kind of like a peek into what it might have been like, you might want to check this out. This is And They Called It Camelot, a novel of Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis by Stephanie Marie Thornton. Nalini Singh is publishing a contemporary romance in her Love Hard, I'm sorry, in her Hard Play series. This is Love Hard and it's Hard Play number three. Um, I am most familiar with her paranormal romances and urban fantasy. I'm not a big contemporary romance reader, but I love Nalini Singh, so I do want to mention her here. This is Love Hard and it's Hard Play, book three, by Nalini Singh. And last but not least, Therese Ann Fowler has a new book out. This is A Good Neighborhood. It's a little different than some of the other stuff she's written. Um, I kind of encountered her because of her historical fiction, um, Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, and then A Well-Behaved Woman, which was the story of Alma Vanderbilt. But this is more of a contemporary novel about two women who live very different lives, but are forced together when their children fall in love. And it's the story of race and class and privilege and lack of privilege and all kinds of hard-hitting, tough, intense topics. 
It looks super great. I really enjoy this author's writing. Um, Z will be one of my favorite books of all times um, for just a long time to come. I can't imagine anything really coming along to displace it. So this is A Good Neighborhood and it is by Therese Ann Fowler. And that is all I have for you this week. I hope you have found a book or two or ten to add to your TBR pile. Um, there are so many fantastic things coming out. We are living in like one of the best times for books, I think. Anyway, I want to say thank you to Liz Moore for sitting down and chatting with me about her fantastic writing. And thanks, of course, to all of you for joining me for another episode of the Book Bistro podcast. If you would like to let us know your thoughts, you can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform you use to access the show. And not only does it allow us to see your feedback, but it also helps other book lovers to find us, which is a great thing. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with more bookish fabulousness. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more discussion of great books. Take care, everybody.